grave danger. Is there another kind? You see, the useful idiots that the Soviet Union, that Lenin put into America, are now the useful idiots from the Chinese. U.S. President Joe Biden, who has had another week of gaffes, confused moments. Uh, uh, They're coming down on America like Pac-Man, eating us up alive. Uh, uh, They're acting more as propagandists. Also, the science has changed. You know the Pac-Man game? Think of a Pac-Man game out of control. Sucking away at the foundation of America. If Russia pursues its aggression, it will face the massive consequences that... Because if they don't want you to believe something and they can cast doubt... We have no intention of fighting Russia. Sometimes confusion can actually be the goal. The goal. The goal. And as we've said all along... Confusion can actually be the goal. I think the guest that I have for you this hour is the antidote to a lot of what is going on right now. Welcome to Speaking Out America. I'm JR. I'm your host, and I am delighted and honored to have with me a mover and shaker in today's society by the name of Gareth Gwynn. Gareth is an author. She's a, a, a graduate uh Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She's got her MA in uh, arts. She's published. She's made movies she's created websites she's got a personal growth work concept that she's putting out there she's just a, a woman of many accomplishments and her latest book is called you are us how to build bridges in a polarized world and that's where we're at we're in a polarized world so let me bring on the guest uh and gareth it's very good to have you here i thank you so much for coming on today and speaking with us how on earth did we become so polarized and shut what were the contributing factors this is unprecedented would you agree with that statement that we are more polarized than ever before what caused it yeah thank you so much it's great to be here with you and i really appreciate the questions that you're raising for our world and how we can actually step into you know a bolder leadership and in my perspective a lot of the polarization has it comes from What's happening? How does polarization show up as a tension inside of our bodies when we feel defensiveness, when we feel blame, when we feel resentment? How are these unprocessed emotions? What can they tell us about what it is we're doing to contribute to polarization? And how is our own rigidity um, not allowing us to step into a conversation, into a dialogue or into a space in which we can actually have more critical thinking, more free thinking, more open discussions and not feel so defensive with each other. So in my perspective, a lot of that, that um, the, the, the polarization comes from the inner world and not dealing with our own traumas or limiting barriers that would allow us to, you know, have that type of spaciousness in a conversation. And so this is why you can't even tell a joke, because the first thing that it does is it goes through a filter, a person's filter, and they have to decide whether what they just heard is offensive and they should take a position on it. Uh, or if it's not offensive and it's okay to laugh without the fear of offending anyone. It's gotten down to that. Uh, you know, even just a joke can be politicized. Everything is politicized. The weather is politicized. And again, I'll just pose it to you. When did this start accelerating to the level you, you've been to, if you mind, uh, when did you grad? What was your class at uh, UNC? Yeah, I graduated UNC class undergraduate in 2007 and 2015 from graduate school at UNC in the journalism school. Um, okay. And so, yeah. So even know, then, when I was, uh, what was yeah, it like was, on campus? Yeah, you know, a, a lot of this was um, relevant, but my understanding is that it has increased today and that these 
these conversations, particularly in the academic spaces and communities, are more tense. There is more um, less space for exploration. And I think that in some ways, you know, um, it's, it's a lot worse than when I was there. And at the same time, the approach that I'm taking is sort of trying to bring back a radical responsibility to victim mentality and saying, okay, well, you know, if I don't feel open to speak in these spaces the same way that I used to, then what is it about my own righteousness or my own defensiveness that can allow me to generate actually and take responsibility for showing up in a space where I don't actually invite defensiveness from other people, but I can still speak my mind. I can still speak my ideas and my expression and do it in a way where I'm inviting inspiration from people and curiosity from people. And how do I shift out of saying, I'm not allowed to speak or feeling victimized myself by victim mentality. And so sort of orienting around what is it that we can actually do have control over and how does actually taking responsibility inside ourselves for how we show up then actually have impact on the type of response we receive in the external environment. All right. You know, there was a poll out not long ago, uh, Gareth, that said that 70 percent of youth do not feel they are looking forward to a better life ahead than their parents Do you think that a lot of young people today are just generally dissatisfied and they're looking for meaning in their life and that in that way it makes them more susceptible to getting in with one tribe versus another where that sort of tribal uh, mentality starts to start to take over the us and them? Uh, Do you think that younger people today have less hope and how do we get that hope back into them so that they don't see themselves as victims? Yeah, um, I do think that there is um, an unprecedented level of overwhelm and saturation, especially in the social media digital spaces. And so it really brings up how does, how does things like digital media impact our connection with each other and how might a decrease in social connectivity it contribute to the need for belonging and, and to have a way to belong, a way to identify. And so where do we seek getting that belonging from other outlets and other spaces and other ways to really like, you know, create a solidified identity that we then need to defend if something in the external world feels like it's threatening us, whether it is or it isn't, we feel that threat. And so I think that, that I think there is a vulnerability and I think having compassion for that vulnerability is a first step towards creating an environment where we're not continuously arming people to feel like they need to defend themselves. And so being able to have empathy and compassion for how people are feeling victimized actually can open a door to then create a broader, expansive conversation that there are other possibilities than just reacting in that one way and just adopting political correctness as a way to belong, that there are other opportunities. And those opportunities and possibilities create more freedom for each individual person. It's not just to to, to get on board with another political agenda and saying, no, this is for you to feel free. You sound like an optimist. Uh, tell, tell us a little about you, your background. Where did you grow up? What was what was life like for you growing up in America? Yeah. Um, well, I feel fortunate because I grew up in an environment that was politically polarized. And so I feel like I uniquely got to actually, from a, ch- from a child's perspective, I got to see my parents, my biological parents, grappling with you know, how they could relate across political division. And so for me, I wasn't at the place when I was a little girl saying, okay, I'm going to adopt a political perspective. I was just saying, oh, wow, this is a tough thing for them. And I love them both. 
So I could hear and see things that they couldn't hear and see and how they were relating. And it occurred to me over time as I got older, this is less about, um, a, you know, a specific agenda as it is about defending an identity or having a sense of righteousness. And so once you actually peel back and you can take responsibility and show up in a way that actually has empathy, you don't have to change your perspective. You can still advocate for a specific belief, but it changes the receptivity in the environment. So I feel fortunate that I got actually to experience that so close and be able to actually move towards it and realize how that tension is something that we can really harness, how polarization is something that's indicating to us a place that we can find creativity and we can find if we process these emotions, we actually can be free from this. We can use polarity to our advantage and actually create, you know, new possibility from it. There's a saying that comes from a, a, a man who I respect, Dennis Prager. He says, first, let's figure out where we agree and then we'll work from there. And I love that approach because you're not always going to agree with like you say, my wife and I are, are pretty ideologically different, but it's it's that ability to get along and coexist, even if you aren't in agreement with whatever happens to be in the news that day. That's a skill that you have to learn in life. It's not an easy skill to acquire, but I get what mm -hmm. you're saying. You got to watch your parents, and they were they were tussling back and forth, and and kind of like the old Paul Simon song, things were flying and. And but you also saw in that that there were two individuals who are trying to find common ground. And I think that that when we was it uh, Jordan Peterson said, you'll find that people have more in common than they don't if you just mm -hmm. take the time to listen to them. And maybe we need to do more listening and less talking. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I feel like when we feel threatened by something someone said, can we get curious about why we feel threatened. And yeah. so that allows us, like you're saying, to listen more instead of retreat into a space where, oh, I just need to defend myself because I feel threatened. So if we can, like you're saying, we, we can expand our capacity to listen and to hear what someone actually is putting forth, and we don't have to agree with it. We can just be with that dissonance. You know, it's funny. I don't know how, are, are you on social media a lot? I know I am. Yeah, I, I appreciate social media, actually. Yeah, but what I find mm -hmm. is I fall into that step of if I read a particular person on Twitter that uh, I don't agree with, that they say things over time that irritate me, I'll just unfollow them. But that's not really the answer, because if you just start unfollowing people mm -hmm. that you don't agree with, pretty soon you're in a room with a bunch of people that all sort of self, uh, they, they all feed into that, that polarization that you're talking about. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so interesting, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head there by, by showing an example of how the emotion that you feel when you read a tweet, you know, yeah. could it be anger? Yeah. And that anger, if you're like, I don't want to feel that, then you start to censor, and you censor your own world. You know, there's a responsibility for even the self-censorship because it's like, I don't want to feel that anger. But if you just are able to be with the experience of anger, there's no need to censor anything. Yeah. That's true. Hey, hang on. We're going to uh, take a quick break. We'll be right back. Uh, you are listening to the uh, great program, Speaking Out America. And I'm so uh, excited to have as a guest, Gareth Ginn. Uh, I'm sorry, Gareth Gwynn. She is a wonderful author. Uh, the book is called You Are Us, How to Build Bridges in a Polarized World. And we'll be back and talk more about this very interesting topic when we continue.
Welcome back to Speaking Out America. I'm your host, JR. Don't forget our website, speakingoutamerica.com. Great articles. Uh, we're talking about the hard question of how do we calm everybody down? That's what's happening right now in our world today. And you can turn on the TV and, and you can see it's happening before our eyes. We're turning into animals. It's a very strange thing that we're doing. So let's uh, jump back in with our conversation uh, with uh, Gareth Gwynn, who has written a book. And the book is called uh, You Are Us, How to Build Bridges in a Polarized World. And we were just talking about social media. You know, to me, it's like social media gave everybody the ability to read each other's minds. You're displaying how you feel at that very moment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that what maybe the, one of the components that would allow someone to feel that they can be more impulsive with their emotion in social media may also be connected to the fact that there's not another actual human body in front of them. So it's like putting my emotion into a digital computer, it doesn't feel the same way if someone's sitting in front of me or I'm on the phone, like we're talking right now, we're, we're in a exchange where we can feel the impact yeah. that we're having in real time with each other and then kind of relate to that empathetically. Whereas on the, you know, a lot on social media, it's, there is less of that human connection where it makes it a little bit easier to just be impulsive. Yeah. And, you know, it would be helpful, I think, for everybody if we would learn to not uh, – I grew up in an age, you know, the 60s and 70s, where you didn't say the first thing that popped out of your mouth because you had to use discretion. You know, the old expression, discretion is the better uh, some, the, the better face of valor. And, and you have to be respectful of other people's whatever it is, their space, their ideological space, whatever it is. You are not always right. And you mm -hmm. can't walk around acting like you're the only one that has the opinion that matters. Uh, and I know that in, in, it's probably harder now for young people because, again, they I remember a world without social media. So turning it off means mm -hmm. nothing to me. I don't need that kind of connection. But that's not so much true with the young people who've been connected ever since they got that first tablet shoved in their hands when they were two years old. So... Tell me about your other projects. Yeah. You've got a, what, I'm intrigued by one. It's called Let's See Labs. Uh, mm -hmm. and tell me about that, will you? Let's See Labs. Yeah, so so similar to um, the content in the book, You Are Us, um, I have collected um, a collection of stories of leaders who have demonstrated the capacity to move beyond their victim mentality, to move, to, to take responsibility for the traumas and the limiting barriers and to understand how to regulate their emotion systems, like emotional um, nervous systems, like you were just sharing, when they see a tweet or when something happens, how to actually get spaciousness and the reactivity. So we use a collection of stories at Let's See Labs to then do workshops about what does it look like, feel like, and mean to be a leader who can effectively navigate a polarized world. And we use storytelling as a way to show, okay, let's get inspired by people who have done this. Let's, let's look at examples across many different contexts and diverse situations of what this can look like and feel like, and then invite people into exploring their own reactivity, their own defensiveness. So when they're saying, oh, I see something online, or someone said this at the university campus, and I feel so angry, and I feel self-righteous. Let's get curious about that self-righteousness and say, what is the wisdom behind it? What is the value that you might care about? And also, how might you be perpetuating that sense of righteousness and closing down conversation? And is that the kind of value that you want to be in? You know, is that something you want to contribute to? Or do you want to step into a way of being that in inspires other people to listen? Sounds like 
uh, a lot of what you talk about is unlearning bad behavior and or uh, thinking, unhealthy thinking, and relearning those skills that make you less defensive, less feeling like you're being attacked, less fearful of your surroundings. Is that is mm-hmm. that something that you've always sort of grasped onto, and maybe from a young age, you started to recognize that there was there was there was po- possibilities in this area. How do we unlearn our bad thoughts, our bad behavior? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the the word unlearning. I do feel like when we're young, we have such an open mind, and then the different um, experiences that we have tr- create trauma, and so. It is interesting to me how trauma can freeze us and can can create limiting barriers to our connection with other people. And so, so yes, I think that we do uh, need to unlearn what we have actually, what has traumatized us. And that can be anything. That can be subtle. It doesn't have to be some big event in our life. It can be a subtle trauma of conformity that we just need to liberate from. We need to free from so we can show up in these spaces um, and with increased connection. Yeah. And I, I do feel like in my life, it is something that has been a relentless curiosity and it has taken on different forms at different times. Um, now this form of these workshops with Let's See Labs on leadership for a polarized world is like the latest iteration. But, you know, ever since I was young, I have had this curiosity about why do people feel so gripped by their emotions all the time? Why do they feel controlled by them? And con- why do they feel that the external world is controlling their internal experience. Because I do believe that as humans, it's possible to have that sovereignty of our own inner world and that we don't have to be held captive by what the external world is telling us. Who were some of your influences growing up and helped you come to these conclusions? Yeah, you know, part of my inspiration has been, uh, has you know, it's been people who have brought nonviolence into social um, issues. So people like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, I feel when I read his work, it's more, you know, and it's funny to use the word inclusive in this context, but I do feel there's a radical inclusivity. As a person with white skin in this society, I feel when I listen to him that I'm invited into this work that we can do together in reconciliation. And then there's other leadership styles where I feel like, oh, I'm, I, I can't be a part of that. I'm not wanted here. And so I don't feel that same inspiration. And so I would say the pattern in leadership has been leaders around the world. Um, and a lot of these examples are in the films I, I have put together, actually, but who have stepped into the responsibility for showing up in a nonviolent way, in a way that inspires other people. And that's actually rooted in the issues that people are fighting over. So all these wars and conflict, we take those identity markers and we kind of pull them apart and deconstruct the hero villain or the victim oppressor narratives. And we just look at the complexity and nuance of humanity. And I do feel people who've been willing to do that have inspired me more than kind of the traditional social activism, which feels more um, divisive in some ways to me. And also, I I appreciate that as another form of um, somebody trying to say something. And I'm curious about why would I feel threatened by something that someone said. And so that's helped me, too, in my own transformation journey to really find what hooks me and then get free from it. Uh, Are you about taking young people that are still trying to get their bearings in life and giving them some helpful tools so that they can make better life decisions? Is that how you see your role? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, we work with um, people of all ages, um, academic environments, and also in corporate environments with teens who are also re- who are mm-hmm. feeling the impact of polarization that's happening in society, right in organizations as well, and impacting the way that teams work. So, yeah, we work with all sorts of people, and I yeah, I appreciate your phrasing of that. It feels accurate. I think the way that we get out of the mess that we're in and all these social ills is going to be by improving our quality of thinking. So I get it and I appreciate what you're doing. So I appreciate you and I hope that you'll come back and see us again too, as well. Uh, any yeah, clo- thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate this opportunity and this dialogue and your really great questions and just being able to, to bring these kinds of dialogues forward. Thank you so much. Gareth, G-A-R-E-T-H, Gwen. And the book, again, is You Are Us, How to Build Bridges in a Polarized World. And real soon. Thank you again, Gareth. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. All right. We'll be right back. Speaking Out America continues. Welcome back to Speaking Out America. I have a column, an article that I wrote, and I want you to check it out if you have a chance. If you go to the articles section of my website, speakingoutamerica.com. Very heartfelt. It was after a night of pondering the events recently in Nashville with the 28-year-old woman. The emphasis, it's interesting, isn't it? We have a world now where we make a point of saying over and over again, like, you know, Stormy Daniels is never said without the preceding porn star were porn actress, right? Adult film actress, right? And then when Audrey Hale, the woman who shot those people at Covenant Church, you know, it's always preceded by the transgender Audrey as if that had anything to do with it. Because at the end of the day, and I talk about this in my article, it is about, um, it is about the hatred that is going on. And we spoke about that with my previous guest, Gareth, a moment ago. Uh, and in in my article, I point out, which is really the kicker, it's called the failed experiment, the failed experiment. And what's happening now, I think, uh, which I think is probably unique, and I'm not hearing anybody else say this, so I I'm not influenced by someone else telling me this, but I really believe that the government is at its best when we are all angry with each other. If, if, if it's clear for, for me at least to see that Joe Biden wants an all hands on deck government approach to every in his mind, because you think about this, he has never had a job outside of politics uh, and he has never had to run a business, although he has a pretty good side hustle going on. And Washington is filled with people who have been utterly convinced, even beyond the point of ever being able to pull back, that the government is there to solve all of our problems. It is there to solve every ill. It is, It is. I don't know if it means to do this consciously or not, but it seeks to assert itself as a parent, an all-wise parent. And then when things go wrong, they never admit that they made mistakes, like with the COVID uh, pandemic. They, they'll never admit that they did things wrong. Politically, they, they don't want to ever admit that they did anything wrong. Andrew Cuomo will never admit that he had any part of the thousands of people who died from the pandemic because of his decisions, forcing people into elderly care homes when they had COVID instead of getting them treated. Uh, 
And so it's just the way it is. And, and it's perfectly captured by David Mamet. David Mamet is a screenwriter. And I've seen him. He's actually a very smart man. Well, I'm sure politically we probably have some differences, but uh, he seems like a pretty intelligent guy, and he makes some astute observations, one of which he writes in the book, in the movie, The Verdict from 1982. If you remember the, the verdict from 1982, Paul Newman is in it. Actually, Bruce Willis makes his first cameo. Interesting thing. If you notice the juror in the back, if you ever go see The Verdict, you look in the back at the end when they're giving the final summation, you'll see a man there sitting alone about three or four benches deep. That's Bruce Willis. He's just sitting there. He's not in the jury box. He's in the he's playing an extra. Anyway, just kind of a side note. But but David Mamet writes uh, and of course the screenplay, if I'm not mistaken, may have been I could be wrong about this, but the guy who wrote A Few Good Men, I'm not sure. But David Mamet wrote the following words as spoken eloquently by the late, great Paul Newman. And I want you to listen because this is the same battle that we are having today. When you think about Audrey Hale and you think about the fact that she legally acquired those weapons, but she had hate. See, this is where we're going with this. This is what it, everybody's talking about, whether the, the rhetoric of the left or the rhetoric of the right or, or who is ultimately responsible, who drove that woman to go into that covenant church and take out those people. And for what reason? It must be a societal problem. And the, the body, the bodies weren't even cold. And you had every uh, right wing politician jumping on saying, we've got to stop this. This has got to end. We've got to confiscate weapons, assault, wet, ban weapons, the weapons of the problem. And then you got the people on the right who are saying, how can you take these people's deaths and turn it into a political opportunity? Because the people on the right believe that the government ultimately, and they don't care how they do it, they want the guns. They want and a disarmed populace, just like they have in Australia. So that when the time comes and they got to turn the screws, they don't have to worry about who has the weapons. That's what the right thinks. And they may be partially correct. I won't disagree with them because I see what governments are capable of doing. History shows us what governments are capable of doing to their people once their people are completely subjugated. But we put our trust in the government. And maybe that's our first mistake. Listen to this, David Mamet, the verdict. It's about two minutes long, but every word is, is just pay attention. You'll enjoy this. Wow. You know, so much of the time we're just lost. I say, please, God, tell us what is right. Tell us what is true. justice. The, the rich win, the poor are powerless. We become tired of hearing people lie. And after a time we become dead. A little dead. We think of ourselves as victims and we become victims we become we become weak we doubt ourselves we doubt our beliefs we doubt our institutions 
we doubt the law. But today you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a, a marble statue. Or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer, I mean, a fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, they say, act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Uh, you know, I just love that movie. I, I was, what, 16? Tw- no, I think it was uh, 20 years old when that movie came out because I was yeah born in 62, 82. So one of the reasons I saved that piece, uh, number one, because I love I love good narration. And I'm a fan of, of 80s movies. I, I think no bigger fan. I, I My first years of employment were working as a an usher for a movie theater, several of them in Hollywood, California. And if you've ever been to Hollywood and if you've ever gone to their movie theaters, well, this is the home of cinema. So they have these grand, uh, spectacular uh, almost a medieval type architect- architecture, uh, and many of these great Grauman's Chinese Theater, the Pacific Theater, the Pantages Theater, they were before uh, screen movies came out. They were also vaudeville and uh, stage acting. So you know, for me, the the glitz, the the drama, the the spectacle, it's just always it's always touched me in a way that has stayed a part of my. Uh, my personality, my character. And so I've always hung on to great moments. And oftentimes during the show, uh, you'll hear me do drops from various classic movies because the truths are eternal. And that's, I think, the point with Paul Newman is that the truth is eternal. And that's why I wanted to play that for you. So much of it rings so true, even to this very moment. We'll be right back. Two, three, four, one, two. Here we go. Valley Road, right? Valley and uh. <laughs> That's my Trump music. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Speaking Out America. <laughs> I told you. I told you this was going to happen. Nobody. I was three days ahead that everybody else. You know, because I was paying attention to what Robert, what's his name, the attorney former attorney for Michael Cohen when he gave that 10-minute speech to the press about how uh, Alvin Bragg withheld 300 emails from the uh, grand jury. It was over at that moment. There was just no way that that case was going to move forward on Trump. And despite the left's desire to watch the man do a perp walk, now we're hearing that after so much media hype, 
uh, about, including from Trump, about the imminent arrest of the former president. It appears things are not going well. The We Got Him This Time crowd in New York's grand jury uh, is not scheduled to meet until April. What is that noise? <laughs> uh, distracted by my own music beds. I thought somebody was creeping up behind me. It's John Williams. It's just interesting to me. It's uh, it, I, I thought we were going to become a repo- banana banana republic. Darn it. <laughs> Political reports, according to a person familiar with the proceedings, the break would push any indictment of the former president to late April at the earliest. Political claims that this is due to a previously scheduled hiatus, but that seems to be sort of an odd admission, wouldn't you say? Why wouldn't that have been brought up before, right? Uh, Epic Times' Jack Phillips reports the month-long delays comes as an attorney in former Pro- President Donald Trump's orbit testified in front of a Manhattan grand jury earlier this month, believing that there had been a shift in the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's case. Well, I think I got through to them. That is Michael uh, Cohen's former attorney, Robert Costello. We actually have that audio. If I had time, I'd I'd play it. But it was very clear from the very beginning. Uh, was the minute that that man spoke, I know that Alvin Bragg's world came trembling down. Costello had said, if you remember, that he represented Cohen and himself and a former Trump lawyer and told reporters last week that he did not believe that Cohen was a credible witness against Trump. And then he proceeded to tell the story of how Cohen freaked out when the Fed started going after him and he got desperate and he was pacing and he was telling Costello and emails and he was writing these emails and he was saying, they're going to come get me and I'm just going to tell you right now, folks, that I'm not going down alone. That was basically Michael Cohen's uh, sentiment. He was, he's, a, he's a guy, the fixer was getting fixed. Um, you know, let me read to you a couple of the comments if I can see them, uh, from people brag is what you get when you replace meritocracy with diversity. Another person writes, these are columns. You ever read the comments that people write about news? Sure you do. Here's one. Here's what you get when you replace meritocracy with loyalty to Soros rather than the office. Uh, Jimmy, a guy by the name of Jimmy writes, is this really a victory or just a means to drag the timeline out? I, I actually do believe and it worries me to a, a big extent because I think what the people that are desperate are going to do, and let this be a warning to uh, our country, really, because when the, you know you can see the lengths at which uh, Trump's political opponents are willing to go to indict him, even to the extent of staving off preparation for a pandemic that you know is coming just so that you can continue on with your impeachment of Trump. If you remember just as, because they know now that this pandemic probably started in October of 2019, not February. But there was one thing on the minds of all the Democrats in Washington. And, And I want you to remember this the next time that you go to the polls because of everything that we had to endure because we weren't we weren't prepared. They were willing to not deal with a pandemic, hold it off as long as possible, just so that they could try to get Trump for making some innocuous statements on a telephone call 
about Hunter Biden, which we are starting to learn probably was warranted by Donald Trump, President Trump. Uh, and so they're willing to go to extreme lengths for this man to, to shut him down. And they're trying to do everything by the book. They're trying to get him. Their thinking is there's something that's got to stick with this guy. I mean, there's no way that he could have all these deals, all these arrangements. There's just no way that he could that he could not be guilty of something. We've got to find a crime on this guy that will stick, that will prevent this guy. Because if we don't, he's going to be elected. Unless they think they can pull a fast one again. You think about that for a moment. You know, the Democrats don't want Trump. And the more they, uh, you know, I'll tell you something. This, and I'm not trying to, well, maybe I am. But, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very, very careful about apprehending Jesus before they had to have a case. And if you remember, they, they brought the blind man because they were trying to show that Jesus pulled a miracle on the Sabbath which would have been enough to get him thrown into jail. I mean, that's how desperate the Pharisees, they were e even willing to take the testimony of a blind man. And of course, we all know the story. I mean, we sing it every, you know, at funerals all the time. I was once blind, now I see. That's all I know. And that man did it on a Sabbath. I, I have nothing to do with that. And, and, and I see the same thing playing out is that they don't want this man to be the president. So what are they willing to do? Are they willing, and I'm talking about the Democrats and the media, are they willing to start World War III over this? Are they willing to start a civil war over all of this? Uh, and that, is, that, that to me is the biggest disappointment. I mean, you can, you can be for, against, pro, con, whatever you want, but the, the people of this country, friends, family members, everybody got in on the act. It was... It was Hatesville. It, everybody hated Trump. It was people throwing shoes at the TV screen and they were glued to uh, Joy Reid and MSNBC and all those people that were just pounding day in, day out. It was, and their ratings were never higher. So you knew that was driving it. And to no avail. To no avail. So what worries me uh, is that if they're willing to go to those extremes, if they're willing to throw the Constitution out the door, if they're willing to, and it's, you know, like Paul Newman, you know, there's the rich win and the poor lose. The rich win and the poor lose. There are two tiers of justice. And they're willing to throw the Constitution right down the toilet just to get this guy because they're afraid that if he gets in, he's going to do exactly what he did the last time, which was drain the swamp. And I encourage you to go to my article, which I wrote, called The Failed Experiment. And you'll understand the gravity of the situation, because if they can't stop Trump legally, what do you think they're going to do illegally that we, will, we may never know about? We may not know what, what private conversations are happening right now. We don't know. But you know that those conversations are happening. You know that there are people who are willing to sell their souls to the devil to get their desired end. And the desired end at this point really is Trump. 
not making him or not allowing him, as Liz Cheney said, anywhere near the Oval Office. And so that's the warning. The warning is, what are these people willing to do? And they're willing to do a lot. I'm telling you, this is not going to end well. And that's what worries me the most about everything, because these people, uh, they want us to hate each other. You know, the government gets stronger every time we get weaker. The bigger the government gets, the smaller the citizen gets. You know, there's a lot of wisdom that you can get from that that dumb TV show, Star Trek. But remember the one episode where the Klingons and Captain Kirk's crew were fighting incessantly and that there was this glowing orb that was getting stronger by the anger, that the anger was fueling this spinning orb, and so that the more anger the that was absorbed, the more energy would be uh, sort of sent back to them, and the more angry they got till everybody is dead. And that's what I worry about here. So we'll continue to, to talk about this, but think of how serious it's becoming. It, the sign is good now because we can celebrate. Maybe Trump will get a reprieve, but they're not done. They are not done. And it's only going to get more tense. I do want to mention that uh, the, the news broke this afternoon. Pope Francis, we want to say prayers. He's in the hospital. Uh, he is a, a scheduled appointment. The pontiff's closest staff, including security, are expecting to stay the night. There's nothing wrong. Pope's uh, schedule has been canceled for a couple of days. And a source says medics would check and see uh, it's basically a regular checkup. It's not clear whether a new ailment prompted his visit. Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni says, or Bruni says the Pope, the Pope was taken to the hospital for some previously scheduled checks. So there you have it. Uh, the Pope is in the hospital, but it doesn't look like it's too serious right now. That's going to do it for years. Truly. Uh, I'm Jim. Uh, I'm JR. And I thank you for joining me on this edition of speaking out America. Don't forget. You can always email the show. The, uh, the email address is speakingoutamerica at gmail.com, speakingoutamerica at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the faith. Speaking Out America. <laughs>